You can read through the text. I'm going to do something because we have this beautiful um, opportunity because it's, yeah. I, I have to say just us, but that uh, we can read through the text and then I want us to go back and we're going to read through the first two chapters to go up to this text again. Okay. Uh, we're in the last part. That's verse 13 of chapter 2. And I want to do some explanation about what it really means to be a tax collector. But also, I want to be able to walk through uh, why, what Matthew would have seen where he is. Because again, it's one of those places where Jesus looks at them and says, follow me, and he just dies in your life. Jedi mind trick. It would be really nice to see what he saw from where he was. Because this is one of my favorite stories because I mean let me put it this way when we go to Israel for instance and you have a site like um, the Mount of Beatitudes well it's pretty simple what you would teach you teach the Sermon on the Mount because that's what took place there then you get to Capernaum and you have all of these different events that took place there which one do you pick? you pick the one that means the most to you at the moment and I always pick this one because this guy I think there's just so much meaning behind how radical this guy would be changed because this is the hardest guy to reach would be the idea uh, there's a text in, in the book of Proverbs that says a brother offended is harder to win than a walled city and contentions are like iron bars and the idea is once you've offended somebody man it's just hard to get to so let's read our verses and then we're going to read around a lot tonight so why not because we can so it starts with this. In verse 13 it says, Then he went out again by the sea, and the multitude came to him, and he taught them. As he passed by, he saw Levi, son of uh, Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, Follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened, as he was dining in Levi's house, that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many and they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, How is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Alright, you guys ready? Now clearly what we have again in our text is Jesus walks up to a guy He's at a tax booth in Capernaum. And as he calls the guy, he says, follow me. And the guy drops everything and follows him. So the question is, what in the world would this guy have seen up to this point, even in the story of Mark, that would help us to get an idea that this is what this guy saw? Now granted, the first part of this, we're not going to see that, but we have to walk through it so we can say we've read through this far. So we're going to read from chapter 1 all the way through to chapter 2, verse 17. Okay? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Uh, as it is written in the prophets Behold I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you That's by the way Malachi 3.1 The voice of one crying in the wilderness Prepare the way of the Lord Make his path straight John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins In all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River confessing their sins now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey 
And he preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John baptized Jesus. It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming out, coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Say intense Jesus. Immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness forty days, tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beasts and the angels ministered to him. Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. And saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And as we walked by the Sea of Galilee, this is our first experience we have in Mark in Capernaum. He saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little further from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat, mending their nets. And immediately he called them. He called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, and went after him. Then they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone, what, ha- what we yeah, it's not what, ha- what, ha- what have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Do you come to destroy us? I know you you are, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. Then they were all amazed, so they <coughs> so that they questioned among themselves say what is this what new doctrine is this for with authority he commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him immediately his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee now as soon as they had come out of the synagogue they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John but Simon's wife mother lay sick with a fever and they told him about her at once. So he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and immediately the fever left her, and she served them. At evening, when the sun had set, they brought to him all who were sick and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. Then he healed many who were sick with various diseases, and cast out many demons, and he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight he went out and departed to a solitary place and there he prayed and Simon and those who were with him searched for him when they found him they said to him everyone is looking for you but he said to them let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also because for this purpose I have come forth 
and he was preaching in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and casting out all demons out demons. Now a leper came to him imploring him, kneeling down to him and saying to him, If you are willing, you can make him clean. Then Jesus, moved with compassion, stretched out his hand and touched him, and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. As soon as he had spoken immediately the leprosy left him, and he was cleansed. And he strictly warned him and sent him away at once. And said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go your way. Show yourself to the priest, and offer for you for your cleansing those things which Moses commanded as a testimony to them. However, he went out and began to proclaim his it freely, and to spread the matter so that Jesus could no longer openly enter the city, but was outside in deserted places, and they came to him from every direction. And again he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately many gathered together, so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door, and he preached the word to them. Then they came to him, bringing a paralytic paralytic thank you (laughs) paralytic who was carried by four men and when they could not come near him because of the crowd they uncovered the roof where he was so when they had broken through they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying when Jesus saw their faith he said to the paralytic son your sins are forgiven you and some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts why does this man speak blasphemies like this who can forgive sins but God alone but immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus with themselves he said to them why do you reason about these things in your hearts which is easier to say to the paralytic you see your sins are forgiven you or to say arise take up your bed and walk that you may know that the son of man has power on earth to forgive sins he said to the paralytic I say to you arise take up your bed and go to your house immediately he arose took up the bed and went out into the presence of them all so that all were amazed and glorified, and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Then he went out again by the sea, and all the multitude came to him, and he taught them. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alpha, sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, Follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened, as he was dining in Levi's house, that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus, and his disciples for there were many and they followed him and when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners they said to his disciples how is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners when Jesus heard it he said to them those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick I did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance Lord this is what we pray We pray that you would speak to us. You know what we need to hear. I know you're alive and active and your word is too. So Lord, minister to us right where we're at. Help us to get what we need to get out of this, please. 
Because, Lord, this is just such a cool test. So please, Lord, open our eyes to what it is you want to do in this time now. Redeem every second, I pray, Jesus, in your name. Capernaum today, Jesus called fishermen at the coast, not the city proper, but outskirts of it, and then heads to the synagogue in Capernaum. There he taught unlike the scribes, he taught with authority. And you can imagine the people coming out of it. Then he cast out a demon, a demoniac, there in the synagogue, and his fame was launched. And there he heads to Simon Peter's house, if you remember, raises up mom, that's something that happens on the inside, we might not have seen that. But then the citywide transformation, the whole city shows up there to be transformed. The whole house becomes a hospital. But then, after all of that, the paralytic is dropped through Simon Peter's roof, if you will. Now, and then, Jesus says this, so that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sin. Get up. It'll be proof. And he does. So that man that was let down through the roof comes out walking and telling people the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Now follow me on this. I'm going to kind of get us a, help us to understand a couple of things about tax collecting so at least we can get a gravity on this. And then I want to ask what you think that would, how, what that would look like today here. When the Romans took over from the Greeks there was a great deal of resistance among the Jewish people for good reason. One of the reasons, one of the things is that they were constantly putting idols of themselves in every place. And Israel had had enough of that back in Babylon when they were taken captive, so they didn't want anything like that. And when they did all of that, there was much resistance, but ultimately they had to kind of submit to the hand of, of Rome because Rome was just going to kill anybody that sort of fought them sooner or later. So if you were going to be associated with Rome, you were the enemy. You were as close to the enemy as anyone could be. Now, Rome was smart enough to know that if they put a guy in a booth to try to get your money, you'd kill him. But they also know that the Jews had this really interesting custom. They wouldn't kill their own. As a matter of fact, it tells us in Proverbs, there are five, there's six, uh, seven things that God hates, that he detests, and he says, a haughty look, a lying tongue, and hand, hands that shed innocent blood. They were so concerned about that that the Romans used it on several occasions. As a matter of fact, when they would surround a city... That, like, for instance, when the uh, Jews went and hid in, in uh, one of Herod's castles, Masada, if the Romans just approached, they would just sort of shoot at him. But if they put Hebrew slaves in front of them, they wouldn't shoot at him. And that was the idea. So they kind of knew that. So they kind of knew if they could get a Jew in there to actually collect that money, they'd probably bless themselves in both ways. The question is, how do you get a Jew to do, so, to do this? Well, you have to play against something. You play against his greed. Now, I'm not saying that about a Jew, I'm saying that about a human being. We all have it. So, what they would do is they'd have a bidding war. They'd take a particular spot, and if they took a particular spot, you could, be, you could be taxed in regards to your income, you could be taxed on your house, you could be taxed on your land, you could be taxed on your fruit trees, because all of those things have potential of income. You could be taxed on your, in this case, like for instance, your catch of fish. You'd be taxed on every time you were caught. You would be taxed on toll roads, in other words, between one place and another. And there were certain things that were required of the government, but then after that, the person who was in the tax booth could then get creative about what else he wanted to tax you on, and there was really little he could do. So in other words, they were making it up as they went along. You never knew what you were going to run into. So they'd have a bidding war. And the way it would work is this. They would take a particular spot that they thought had a potential of income, and they'd say, look, we're going to set up a tax booth here. Traditionally, it's always by a road, because that's always a good place. People have to go back and forth traffic. 
And as it were the case, then people would bid. I can get this much per annum. I can get, Daniel would say, I can get 600,000 per annum. And Nick says, I think I can get a mil per annum. Ultimately, the, la- the guy that's the highest bidder, and again, I remind you, that's, pe- that's money you are extracting from Jewish people. So in other words, I think I can milk them for this much. Whoever wins that bidding war, then of course becomes what's called the chief tax collector. He's the guy in charge of that booth. There is one of those guys in the Gospels. Does it, do either of you know what his name is? He's actually mentioned by name, but only in the Gospel of Luke. I'll give you a hint. He was a tiny guy. Uh, Zacchaeus. Right. Zacchaeus, we read, was a wee little man. A wee little man was from Zacchaeus 19. We read he was the chief tax collector. So that's the guy who actually won the bidding war. In his case, I'm assuming it's in the area of Jericho. That's kind of the way that works. Now, if we were to kind of draw a map of Israel, you've got the Sea of Galilee, and then it kind of comes down with the Jordan River, and then you've got the Dead Sea. You've got the Mediterranean Sea here, and then you've got the Red Sea. So we've got the Dead, the Med, the Red. And so there's all these bodies of water. But from the Red Sea, if you go up this way, it goes into Turkey. That is called the Way of the Sea. It is a Roman road that's called Via de Maris. Via de Maris means the Way of the Sea. It's one of the most important roads. It's a major trade route, basically from Egypt into Turkey. Israel just happens to be the land bridge. So that's a really great place to park a, a tax booth. But between east and west, you've got what's the Silk Road. It's, we're probably familiar with for all kinds of reasons. Now, the Silk Road and the Valle de Maris actually intersect right outside of Capernaum, right there at Capernaum. So putting a tax booth there, that's big money. Now, we don't know who the chief tax collector is, but let's just say you won the bid at a mill. Now, what you do is you hire guys. Traditionally, one of the things you might do is you might hire guys that would have bid, for instance, because you know that they're kind of already ambitious, unless you think that you couldn't trust them, they won't kill you. And... Uh, and then you go, okay, here's the deal. This is how much you have to get me. And then the idea, of course, is like multi-level marketing. So let's say, okay, you have to get me this much on your one day of the week or two days of the week. Ultimately, the idea would be you'd want to make two mil. So you can get a mil yourself. The other mil goes to the Roman, the Roman government. Then that guy has the responsibility of getting the two mil for you, but then also whatever he wants for his own household. That's a Matthew. So Matthew is the guy under your employ. Now, he was, he was considered the ultimate betrayer of the Jewish people, as you might imagine, because he sold Israel out to make money for himself. Now, it was so much the case, by the way, I'll give you an idea. You're probably familiar with the collection of Jewish verbal traditions. It's called the Talmud or the Mishnah, 500 years after Jesus. But I can quote from it, and it says in, by the way, the, the tract, Tacharot 7.6, that if a tax collector enters your house, just comes into your house, Everybody in your house is considered unclean. You couldn't go to church, to synagogue, for, for as long as it would take for you to be clean. And mentioned, tax collectors are mentioned 22 times in the Gospels. Uh, it's also in Sanhedrin's Talmud uh, 25b that they were not allowed to be a legal witness, so they couldn't stand trial. And they were unable, it literally says they were unable to repent. In other words, the moment you became a tax collector, you were just going to go to hell, and that's all there was about it. So let me ask you, since it's the three of us, and we're just kind of around the table for the moment, what would that be like? Who, would, who, What group of people could you put that today? I'd go to Second World War, and I'd go overseas in concentration camps or overseas in slave colonies. Okay, and I would say. Nowadays, I find it hard to pick some. Well, you might pull that out and say human trafficker then, in that sense. I might add, dare I say, pedophile. 
Mm. You know, somebody, especially someone who's a groomer or runs a ring of that. I mean, when you think, one of the ways to kind of put it is, is if you had a British prison, mm. and what I mean by that is not a prison that has everyone from everywhere, like you might find in Pentonville, for instance, but some place like, let's say, deep in the heart of, of, uh, of England, where everyone's going to be white bread, good old boy. And there's a pecking order. Who would be the bottom of that pecking order? Pedophiles would definitely be one of those. Anyone that in essence was against patriotism. But who else? Prison officers that have been caught doing things in policing. Yeah, I mean, you're asking for it. Because obviously they kind of beat mm. you anyways. Yeah, and I might go as far as saying maybe terrorists in that sense, in such a group. I mean, do you do you ever see the... Remember the guy Michael... However you say his name. The guy that was, in essence, took the machete to... Uh, yeah, Lee Rigby. Lee Rigby. Now, they knew where to put him in prison. Because there were several prisons he could probably actually gather a crew in. But he went. they put him in a prison where where everybody was very nationally minded. You ever see any pictures of him after that? Like when he had to stand trial? The guy looked like Mr. Potato Head. He had lumps on his face in places that shouldn't have lumps. And what was clear is people really didn't like him very well. The reason I say that is take that group of people and say that's a Matthew. And in all of those cases, those are people who make choices. It isn't something like they were born bad. It isn't, you know... You could be born from any nationality, but a terrorist is somebody who makes a choice to do that, just the same. And so there's a, there is such a hatred against such a person that there are some people who would be just like, this person's going to hell, it doesn't matter what could possibly happen, that's just the way it is. That puts us into the place of where Matthew would be, but let's go beyond that. Matthew is not called Matthew in this text. He's called Matthew, by the way, for what it's worth in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew calls Matthew Matthew, which, by the way, is the Greek word, and it means gift of God, which was Matthias Yaku. What does he call here in these verses 13 and 14? That might be easier to see in here because it's a bigger text. <laughs> Your eyes are anyway like mine. Yes! Okay, now, now that sends me on a quest. Now I have to say, from this point on, it's all conjecture. I can't say verbatim, this is because the scripture doesn't say it, but it does say his name is Levi. So we've got a name named Levi, by the way, which is a Hebrew name. It's the third of the twelve tribes of Israel. It's the priestly tribe. And I start to wonder. Traditionally, in a Jewish culture, you tend not to name somebody after another tribe. It wouldn't be like, I mean, you don't find, for instance, in any of the, the priests, anyone named Judah, <coughs> for instance. Tends not to be the case. So what if, I mean, obviously he's Jewish. He had to come from one of the twelve tribes. My natural le- leaning is that he came from the priestly tribe. Now that opens up all kinds of weirdness. So you have a guy that was, in essence, the most privileged in a religious culture that became the greatest betrayer in that culture. What do you think he saw? (coughs) What would take a guy that was raised in a religious home and have him live a life, in essence, we might say here, like rampant atheism, 
total outspoken shut down the Christian, what would he have to see that would start him in that place and leave him here? What would you think? In the Old Testament, it talks a lot about what they did around the synagogues and around the tabernacle, and a lot of it wasn't pretty. You're right. <coughs> you know, and from what's written there, the levels of debauchery, that's what's written. So I can only imagine why things happen there, to be part of that or to see that, and not want to see it or be part of it. Yeah. I could imagine you push them away. I agree. What do you think, Dan? Anything you would add to that? Yeah. Um, so I guess either, either have hypocrisy, um, or maybe even, I don't know, seeing Rome <coughs> flourish and <coughs> basically his own people not. So thinking, why well, maybe I can get more from aligning myself with Rome than I can get from aligning myself with my own, my own people. Yeah, I can have to go with you on this. I mean, the, the, again, this is my impression of it. The guy's raised in a priestly environment and he sees big business. As we look at what Jesus had to stand against, think about who was angry at him the most. The priests, the scribes, the Pharisees. They're going to be the ones, the chief priests, by the way, are going to have a real major issue with Jesus. And they're going to be one of the most vocal uh, antagonists against him, especially in the year of his death. So he sees big business. He sees that the, the priesthood... I mean, I can tell you, these are the things we know from the Scripture. The priests were rich. They were the most rich people. They were the most influential. They were the rock stars of the day. They, and remember how Jesus says... By the way, when he speaks to the Pharisees, I think it's in like 17 different times, he talks about a woe to them. He says, you love the best seats in the synagogues, the greetings in the marketplaces. In other words... You walk in and there's a reservation for you whether you put one there or not. But while, meanwhile, Daniel's been waiting forever to get a seat and he isn't getting one. And I'll be honest, as a kid, and I love this about kids, they smell a rat real quick. I love this about kids. You know, they kind of look and imagine if you were the priest's kid and you walked in and you watched Daniel waiting for the seat and he couldn't get it, but your dad got the seat and your dad would probably be like, check it out, isn't it great to be a priest? I think as a kid I'd be like, you know, I think we just kind of, we dissed somebody to get this spot. And I just don't see how that's cool. And they would see them with their long phylacteries. They would see them with their wealthy robes. They would see the high priest with his great honor and everybody's bowing before him. And he'd start to see all of this. And he goes, you know, this looks just like the world. The only difference is in the world, they're doing it unashamedly and they're not trying to hide anything. I kind of get that we all kind of feel like that at times. Well, you see, on one side, it's like, these guys are pretending, and it seems like such a big sham. Because on this side of it, they're, you know, they're like, they're doing the same things, but they're pretending like they're not doing them. So they speak against, you know, premarital sex, but they're way out there. I mean, like you were saying, it's got Eli's sons, Ellie's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are having sex with people at the entrance of the tabernacle. I mean, it's not even just like they're having that, which is horrible enough. They're doing it right at the door of the church. And you can't get more debaucherous than that. And he's like, this is what I see, is that they, they speak against the things, but boy, they just do the same themselves. He goes, now Rome, on the other hand, they, 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 they do it and they do it. At least, there's, I mean, oddly enough, it seems like they're more honest 
And therefore, they're more noble in their debauchery than these other people are in their debauchery because at least they're open about it. Look, one of the things that I kind of found strange, sorry to kind of slide, no, please. is why would the priests allow male prostitutes in, in, the, in the synagogue or the tabernacle? Because they were so part of a culture, they were trying to prove themselves tolerant, is mm. the best answer I can give you. Because the same thing happens today. Mm. It's like, well, since the culture allows these things, we're really going to be outcast if we don't somehow seem like we're okay with it. But ultimately, you know, that shifts into, I mean, sitting around a bunch of people who are light and spliffs, sooner or later, you're going to find yourself doing it whether you like it or not. You know, even if you're just like, well, we just want to kind of, don't want to show that we're going to just condemn everyone. Well, you're going to jump in sooner or later. You're right, though. I think it's, it's madness. Okay, so here's the point in all of this. So let's say we let's let's run this rabbit hole, jump this rabbit hole with me, and we we've got this guy who was kind of raised in a in a religious home. He had all of the benefits. In other words, he would have he would have scripture at his disposal. He would have had an open opportunity to enter into the temple, into places other people couldn't, because there's the court of the women and then the men and then the priests. He could get into that area if that if he really is that, which means he could get in deeper than all the other people, the average person. He gets to see all of that. He gets to stick around until the incense is done, in essence, while everyone else has gone home. He sees all of this, and he goes, forget this. I'm going to just go get mine, and I'm going to do it unashamedly. And he goes and does all of that. The question is, how do you reach a guy like this? Because this is the guy, the moment you start talking about Jesus, you know his eyes are rolling. You're like, oh, brother, you're one of those freaks? I know that stuff. I was raised around that stuff. Let me tell you about my dad and... You know, and we talked and we talked to these people, and I'm like, wait a minute, let me see if I have this right. Your dad divorced your mom, and he was a worship leader. Now he's just worship leading at another church, and now it's okay with them, even though he just kind of he's still in the situation. And you go, I don't get it. And you can see the kids are like, this is madness. There's no structure. There's nothing that's right or wrong. It's just something that anyone can do whatever they want to do. There's no real submission to God. There's no lordship there. So how do you reach a guy like this? Because Jesus is just going to walk out and say, follow me. He's at his booth. He's going to, in essence, what we're going to read in Luke is that he leaves that behind, which, by the way, would not only just mean that he would get fired, he could get killed for that. If he would be the chief tax collector, you could have, you could order Rome to have him killed because he left his post. And I look at that and I think, what would cause a guy to do that? So here's the cool part. He is in one of the busiest spots where he would be positioned in his tax group. So put yourself in that place. To your left is the synagogue. To your right, Simon Peter's house. What do you see up to this point? Well, one of the first things you may see is everybody head into the synagogue like people normally head into the synagogue. What do you do? Maybe before that, what you did watch was a bunch of guys leave their boats. And one of them was Simon Peter. And I would imagine he had probably a fair bit of reputation in the area. And I would look and go, that's just so weird. Okay, there's a new teacher in town, and these guys are all flocking to him. He's starting to get a crowd. He walks in there. And as he walks in there, as, he, as people leave, somewhere in all that, you hear shouting. You hear that crazy man shouting stuff. It's a possessed man. Now, I don't know if you can if you could identify that from the tax booth, but what you do here is just quite a commotion. And then as they leave, 
he gets to hear the conversation because they're going to walk right past him. He's on the main road. Nobody teaches like this guy. He teaches with authority. Did you see him just cast a demon out? That would get my attention. It would get my attention because everything up to this point has been all talk and sham and no real action. There's been no power. Okay, that would catch my attention. Then after that, Jesus goes into Simon Peter's house. I kind of watch this. This guy's got a crowd and he walks into Simon Peter's and I'm like, hmm. And here you are. How cool is God that he puts you front row, center for all of this. You just sit in your booth. You're trapped like a veal and you really can't leave. So you're really going to watch what's in front of you. And you watch this Jesus walk in. But there's another group of people that left that synagogue that weren't as exactly as happy about Jesus doing all this. Who would that be? religious leaders and that I think would be the biggest thing you know sometimes a guy is most truly known by his real enemies because a guy that's trying to be friends with everyone may not you may never really realize what kind of guy he really is (coughs) but the moment you start seeing who he's willing to let be his enemy you actually see what they really stand for And the one thing from the beginning that Matthew had in common with Jesus is they both seem to have problems with the same religious system. Wouldn't that catch your attention? That would catch mine. So they'll be allowed to head into Simon Peter's and we all know Simon Peter's a guy with terminal athlete's mouth. Puts his foot in his mouth so often I think he can clean his toes with his tongue. And as it's the case, something seems to have happened. We know it's the Simon Peter's mother-in-law is healed, but we can't see that from the outside. But what we can see is a bunch of guys, including Simon Peter, leave the house and then start grabbing the crazy people, the possessed, the paralytics, and they just start bringing them there and Jesus heals every one of them. And I start to wonder, and I'm like, how in the world do I tax this? How do I tax people getting healed? I mean, you've lived your whole life trying to figure out a way to get money out of every situation. This would be a rough one. But I kind of watch this and I think, okay, that's, this guy is clearly different. This guy is clearly different. You don't read him actually bragging about himself, talking about how awesome he is. He's not quoting a bunch of other people. He's just running around touching lives and changing them. What a hero. How about if we were that? So, I watch all of this and I think, okay, that's pretty crazy. Then Jesus is gone for a while. So I have time to ruminate that. Because remember how Jesus gets up the next day, early before sunrise, prays, and he's like, oh, you guys, we need to leave here. We're going to go to other places. We've got more places to visit. So we've got some days where Matthew's just back in his tax booth doing his work. Collecting money from the Jewish people, making them very angry. You with me so far? Then this story we read last week. And it's, by the way, in all three accounts where Matthew is called, it always happens right after that story. There are four guys carrying a car because they love a guy enough that they're going to get him to Jesus or whatever it is. And we talked about how important it is to be a cop carrier for others. Someone you could depend on will carry you to Jesus. And someone, chances are the guys that you would carry would be your cop carriers too. I love cop carriers. Guys that are really genuine. You know that when there's a need, you can lean on them. Say, dude, I need this now. And not just, I need you to fix this thing. But when you're in trouble, 
when you're in that place where you don't even want to go and you can't even feel like you, you don't even feel like you have the ability to they'll pick you up and take you there themselves I'll praise God for that well and how hard it was for them they couldn't even just get him through the front door the crowd's huge do you remember what they have to do they have to get on the roof cut through the roof rip through the roof actually and then drop the guy down no I would imagine for the four guys they would have been like oh come on does it really have to be this hard to get him to Jesus God is working on so many levels do you realize what he's doing here I think one of the reasons that they couldn't just get him right in and they had to go through the roof was for Matthew because with them having to go to the roof Matthew's going to see them them going right through the crowd they're not going to see much of that but to watch that guy be dropped through the roof if you were in your tax booth would that not be the one thing you would want to watch at that moment it's not everyday people rip through your roof to let it a paralytic and as they let him down Jesus says to him son your sins are forgiven and again the religious leadership goes mental they go potty all over who can do that but God so we ask, sorry guys, let me ask a question. What's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you or get up and walk? Obviously it'd be easier to say your sins are forgiven you because who's going to see anything? He goes, so, let me take the harder one on so you can see that the other one actually is true. So you can believe that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Get up, take your cotton walk. And the guy gets up and takes his cotton walk. Now, imagine the sound you hear from his tax booth. The, the gasping and the what and all of that after the complaining of Simon Peter and the others because the roof was being ripped up. So the guy comes running out and he's like, I can walk, I can walk. But he says, but the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. And I'm like, wait a minute. I was told once I do this, there's no going back. I'll never be forgiven and I can never repent. And you're telling me that this guy actually can forgive? And then Jesus looks at him and he comes up to him and he goes, All right, Matthew, follow me. I could see why he would leave at that moment. Because he didn't have a problem with the enemies that Jesus was making because they were already his enemies. The issue is with what Jesus just wanted after all that. What's evident is he clearly died. And man, what would it be like to be one of his disciples? To go, Are you seriously calling Matthew? Do you know what this guy does for a living? He's like, you're going to leave all that behind. Matthew will never go back to tax, to tax collecting, by the way. Very cool, by the way. Jesus will still use it as the metaphor for the worst guy. He'll be like, you know what? I mean, look at it. If you just lend to those who you expect to get back, or you're only kind to those you expect kindness back from, he goes, don't even the tax collectors and sinners do that? He'd be like, you know, imagine being able to say that at church, going, you know what? So what you're trying to do is just kind of be nice to people. You don't even pedophiles do that. Because it still has that same kind of impact. And I realized, saying something like that, we'd be like, oh man. But you're like, it's true. They still know how to put on the show and they still know how, to, know how to act nice to people. But Matthew's going to leave everything in by, behind, including his life, and including that money, and including his riches. So here's the question, according to our text, and now we're almost done. Jesus says, follow me. Where are they going? Where is the first place they go after Matthew leaves his tax book? His house. Can you imagine? He's like, Nick, follow me. He said it's a one man. Nick goes, Nick goes, okay, where are we going? He's like, your house, Nick. I love the fact that if we're going to follow Jesus, the first place he's going to take is his home. 
Because once he really takes us home, he's going to do some serious cleaning there. What is the result of that? Well, look at what it says. Let's follow this in now. Luke 5, by the way, verse 28 says, in the countertext, that he left everything, rose up and followed him. Now it happened as he was at Levi's house, that many tax collectors and sinners also sat with Jesus and his disciples. There were many, and they followed him. Now don't miss this. So what did Matthew do, or Levi, as we see here, what did Levi do once he started following Jesus? Well, that's at least not distracting. <laughs> he started inviting all of his friends. Notice that. He's like, and I get the idea. He's like, if Jesus would want me, well, then he's certainly going to want my crazy friends. That's not a problem. So it's like many tax collectors and sinners. So what does Matthew do? He's like, Jesus, if you're coming to my house, I'm putting on a feast. Do you mind if I invite all my friends? And you can see Jesus going, oh, be my guest. So all of the riffraff shows up. These are the guys who are wealthy for the wrong reasons. We might say it would be like the drug community in that sense. Jesus calls a stoner and says, follow me. And the guy takes all of the guys that are like big per kilo dealers. So these guys have money and they're all questionable and they'll all pack in and that kind of thing and they all show up. But notice what took place in verse 15. It says, they sat together with Jesus and his disciples. There were many of them. And what happened as a result of that? Look at what does it say at the end of verse 15. They followed him. They followed him. Do you realize Jesus inviting one person to follow him resulted in a whole lot of people following him? Because what it took was one guy that was willing to leave everything behind to follow him. And as a result of that, he could take the other people that knew how much he would have to lose. And you need to see this. I'm going, you should come with me. And they did. And I've got to be honest. As I look at this, I think, how many people have I been at least willing to say, hey, I'm leaving everything to follow Jesus who wants to come with me. Because Jesus starts a revolution here with the least likely guy who once he nails him and says, you follow me, the guy who really made the choice, I think it became evident because he was willing to invite everyone else to come with. When we came here to plant this work, you're probably aware, we opened it up and said, who would like to come with us? Now we realize a lot of those people probably shouldn't have come with us. Some of them were absolutely great to come in. But I realized the whole idea of it was, I just want to follow Jesus and I want you to follow me as I do. What if this is what our life was like? Up to this point, the disciples were like, if I could just get him to Jesus... I'm convinced he would fix him. But I get the idea that Matthew thought, if I could just get him to Jesus, I'm convinced they'd follow him too. If they knew him like I know him now, let's do that. So imagine at this moment, if it ended here, it would be like this happy, warm fuzzy. Because what you have is a bunch of now ex-drug addicts, or ex-dealers, or in this case, ex-tax collectors, ex-pedophiles, ex-whatever, but you get the idea. They're leaving all of that behind, and the money and all that goes with it, so that they could just follow Jesus. This guy who, by the way, has no home. But he's preaching and touching lives. The problem is, there's still another faction that isn't going to be happy about it. And it's always going to be the case. If everybody, if a revival took place in U-turn, for instance. I mean, we're not just talking about people that are kind of cool with Christ. But like, 
They got so excited, they just wanted to see the whole world transform. And you could tell there was something really, really going on that way, to a very manic, very radical way. Someone's going to go, that doesn't happen there. That happens in our group, in our denomination, in our thing, in our church building. And if it doesn't happen there, I don't think it happens. But if Jesus is there, why wouldn't it happen? So it says in verse 16, when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating and drinking or eating with tax collectors and sinners, who did they speak to in verse 16? His disciples. His disciples. You know how that works, right? You never go to the source. Because you can't cause division by going to the source. You have to go to the second hand. So why does your, your teacher do that? Is the way that it'll actually be said in Matthew. Your teacher get off eating with all and drinking with all of those people. Making these disciples defend Jesus. You ever see that happen? Where they, t- I mean, people that try to get you to defend Jesus. Like, well, what about this? What did Jesus have to say about that? I'm like, well, why don't you ask him yourself? Fool! I'm just a disciple, man. And I love the fact that Jesus will let people ask the question, but he's going to answer it anyways. He's going to go, boys, don't worry about it. I'll take this one. Jesus does not need us to defend him. He'd rather just have us follow him. And you realize when those moments happen, let Jesus answer, you can go find answer. Where does he get off doing that? So Jesus' response to the religious leaders is, let's just be honest, who needs a doctor? The sick people do. Well, people don't need a doctor. I haven't come to call the righteous, but the sinner to repentance. You know, the problem is, Everybody in that room was a sinner but him. Just some didn't see it. And there's the problem. Jesus is like, I didn't just come to call them to be well. I come to call them to repent, to change their mind. Stop relying on themselves and trust me and follow me. And the only people who weren't doing that were the religious leaders. And I realized that at a moment like this, you could see Matthew going, wow. At that moment, Matthew had all of the advantage over people who were steeped in all of this old money from the religious leadership. All of the stained glass and all the gold factions. And like some of that stuff just doesn't make any sense to me at all. But it's like we've got gold-covered lectures as we preach to the poor kind of thing. And I'm like, how in the world does that work? And Matthew's just like, I'm going to follow this guy. I'd rather take on and follow this homeless guy who really knows God than all you guys with your crazy system. That doesn't even mean anything to people. I mean, it has no sight, scope, scope of eternity. Does that make sense? Now, let me come up with a couple quick things here, just a food for thought. And then I want us to pray. First of all, if Matthew was a tax collector, he would have to learn by seminar. It isn't like a doctor that has to go to school for years and years and years before he can get his right to practice. Matthew went through a seminar and then a second seminar, a third seminar, be able to do that. And by the way, Matthew's gospel is very much like that. They're sermons. That's just a seminar. Matthew's giving us the Sermon on the Mount, the Seminar on the Mount, and the Sermon on the Sending in chapter 10 versus the 5 through 7 Sermon on the Mount. It's the Sermon of the End Times in 24 and 25. It's like these kind of things because that's the way he learned. That's the way he's showing us. And one of the things I love the most is that he would have a supply of, of uh, writing materials, that's both the ink and the quill and the, the uh, materials to write it on, 
at any given moment, and he was also taught Roman shorthand. Matthew was the one guy that I know among Jesus' crew that could write as fast as anyone could talk. That's what he was taught. And I'm firmly under the impression, but this is just my impression, that when Matthew wrote down the Sermon on the Mount, he was writing down as he was listening to it. And what a crazy thought that would be. That Matthew could listen to these things and write them down as he was listening. Jesus hired a scribe without knowing it, without Matthew knowing it. I think I could write all this stuff down. I think that's epic. But back at our point. Now, I don't know what... Now, Matt, I can tell you this. Daniel, I know, was raised in a godly Christian home. How about you, Nick? Were you raised in kind of a religious home at all, or was it... Uh, semi. Semi, okay. My mom's Catholic. I went to Sunday school. Okay. A little bit, so. Got a little... You got a little hint of that. Yeah. So, so I might say that was kind of more a secular world with little side dishes of yeah. religion. There's going to be two kinds of people in the world, in essence. There are going to be those, in essence, who are raised in a secular home and those who are kind of raised in a religious home. For those that are raised in a secular home, it's always been about ourselves. It's always been about us first. And we just add whatever else we want to add into it. And then we just see how we can add that and make the world serve us. In a religious home, it's the same thing. It's just draped in... And again, I'm not talking about a Christian home. I'm talking about a religious home where it's tradition and politics. In such a case, usually in a secular home, one of the hardest things is to say that you need saving because you're so busy trying to prove that you're, you can make it happen yourself. You're, a, you're your own man. So it's a very humbling thing to be able to say. I need to say. But on the other side of it, when we're in a religious home, we think that our actions were enough to save us. The difference is, is that it's hard to convince a guy that he needs to be saved because he doesn't think he ever needs to be saved if he's not raised in a religious home. But a religious home, usually the person thinks they're already saved. That's the problem. So there, there are hoops to jump on both sides. Hurdles to jump. But it's one thing to say, all right, Daniel, we're going to go and we're going to try to reach out to people who are raised in sort of religious homes. Let's start showing them that they genuinely need to be saved and all that they're doing isn't enough. Because that's basically what you find we're doing here in regards to our texts with the religious leaders. But you get into someone like Matthew, you're talking about that sort of upper level because this is a guy who hates religion now. He hates all of that stuff. And you smell like it the moment you come walking in. And you start telling, no, no, no. There's actually a genuine for which this lie you've been watching completely stands against. And the reason I say that is I just want to pray for us that we would actually be like this guy. But when Jesus says, follow me, not just agree with me, or just take this little token and hand this in at the pearly gates, but follow me. Come on this adventure now and let your feet know me and not just your, not just your brain. And when that happens, that God would use us to be magnetic and call all of those other people and say, you know what, he's actually saved me and I want, to, I want you to have that too. And if that happened to us, because they're going to follow him to, to, to more lepers and more maniacs and more demoniacs and ultimately to the cross. And how weird that would be for him to look at that and go, wait a minute, wait a minute. We've had victory over everything until now. What in the world's this? And then to see him die and then to see him buried and then to see him alive again and go, oh my goodness. Matthew traditionally, by the way, makes his way all the way into India and is crucified and splayed at the same time and pierced through because the guy would not stop shut. He would not shut up about Jesus. Because, man, once he saw him risen, there was nothing left to do. This guy was a guy that was going to invite people. Now, I pray that for us. What would it be like if it was just us? 
if we were like, we really understood what it was like to be that saved, and how amazing it is, Jesus is not doing us a favor by saying, follow me. He's not like, wow, you know, Nick, you got a really cool history. I think we could really use those things. He's like, you know what? Sorry, over all of the other things you've ever done wrong and the weaknesses you have, I want you to follow me because you have, I'd like you to join me in this amazing adventure. What happens, man? Every step becomes this most amazing thing and you realize, man, there are things to discover that are unbelievable here. And that's my prayer for us. Right, will you pray with me? Jesus, you came to call sinners to repentance. And we start by admitting to you, we are sinners. Repentance didn't mean to stop doing bad things, but literally to change our mind. To change our mind and stop thinking we're good enough on our own and our own things. To stop thinking that self-reliance is going to be good enough, but rather to rest in you and say, God, please, take us and make something beautiful out of it, please. Would you? I just want to commit Daniel and Nick to you, Lord, and myself as well. Make us the kind of guys, Lord, that when you say follow me, that we really follow you, that we were willing to leave the tax booth and we're willing to leave the, all of the promises in the 401k that comes with it just the same way that Peter, James, John, and Andrew left their, their boats and their nets and their father's business so that they could follow you, Lord, because they were convinced that what you had and where you were leading them was going to be greater than anything they could possibly have anywhere else in the world. God, give us that conviction. And in doing that, Lord, make us people who are willing to follow you in such a way that we invite everyone else and say, you know what? He'll do the same with you. And I'm just convinced if you could know him like I knew him, you'd follow him too. Give us that kind of conviction and that kind of strength, Lord, that we would be willing to do that. And in doing that, Lord, make this night the beginning of the most amazing adventure for all three of us, please. Thank you for the privilege of tonight and what you're doing here. Please do that with us. Jesus, in your name. Amen. Amen.